You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Shalom, this is To Stir With Love, a criminal justice reform podcast. Uh, I'm Avram Kivalevich, and we're here, as we have been the last number of weeks, not only with my good friend and uh, head of the chaplaincy department, I always get the name wrong, in, in Waymart, Pennsylvania, Rabbi Yitzchak Kolokowski. Not only Rabbi Yitzchak is here with us, but we have a panel from our, uh, that our good friends from Hinda Helps, uh, which is, as we've said before, a wonderful institution uh, that deals with all aspects of, uh, of incarcerated persons uh, with Rabbi uh, Benjamin Scheiman, his Rebetzin, Rebetzin Avigail, Abigail is here with us. Uh, we also have with us tonight uh, someone who uh, has become someone of a fan favorite with people, retired Captain Dan Sosnovic, uh, 30 years in the New York uh, City Police Force, the NYPD itself, uh, a 30-year veteran, retired captain. And uh, I'm very happy to welcome here another panelist who's with us, um, who had been a, a public defender. Was it in uh, the Cook County, uh, Bob? It was uh, uh, Mr. Bob Yes, uh, Cook County, all over Cook County. Yes. Right, the Cook County, which of course is one of the largest, most diverse and interesting and a lot of, as we've talked about before, um, if not riddled with crime, but definitely something the public defender for Cook County for many years, Mr. Bob Goodman. So thanks a lot to everyone uh, for being here with us. Uh, we want to tackle tonight uh, uh, something that, has, that really had a tremendous amount of currency a year ago um, and in some ways uh, led to and what we've talked about last week and weeks before um the the uh i guess what we call is the protests slash riots slash um uh demands of uh, for racial justice uh we don't want to deal as large as the complete society uh we want to talk about uh, some issues that are probably more germane in many ways uh to the african american community um, and however, it has relevance to us as well, not just because we are human beings and members of what we believe is a, a, a society that should be just, but also because it does really affect every single one of us. And that has to do with methods of policing, um, especially as it refers to uh, the most, one of the most common interactions that we have with police in this country, which is uh, in traffic. But we want to start, want to start tonight uh, talking about, with Rabbi Scheiman, uh, about this issue in a different form. And that is uh, the fact that in so many ways, Rabbi, uh, if, especially if you know the history of the United States in the latter part of the 20th century, the Jewish people and the African-American people uh, found common ground. Uh, there was a sense that uh, the struggles of the Jews in many ways mirrored uh, what African-Americans were trying to achieve uh, post-World War II. Uh, there, there was a, a tremendous amount of prejudice and uh, what we would say uh, Jews were not allowed in various places. They weren't allowed in, in, in various hotels. And, and the Jews created a common ground with the burgeoning 
a civil rights movement in the 1950s. Uh, and then, as we know, I think everybody's emblazoned in everybody's mind the image of uh, the rector or Rosh Hashiva, as it were, of the JTS, H.A. Uh, uh, Heschel, Avram Joshua Heschel, walking hand in hand uh, with Martin Luther King. I think they were marching in Selma, I think, together. Um, and there's, of course, we know about the, the interactions during that period. Um, and some, some would say that it was almost uh, a glory period of the Jews being on the right side of things, connecting uh, with the African-American community. However, uh, in if you want to say this is the latest permutation of, 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 of a demand for greater social justice, it would seem that um, the Jews... The Jewish people, and of course, that's a big brush to say the whole Jewish people, but many Jewish organizations, be they Orthodox or not, are having somewhat of a difficult time um, finding common ground with uh, African-American activist organizations. I'm not talking specifically about Black Lives Matter, but in general. And even though, especially Rabbi Scheinman, in your area, which is, of course, criminal justice, and, and you know you, you are the champion for the incarcerated, and we know proportionately the amount of people of color that are incarcerated is much greater than it is in the general population. So it would be natural for you to, to create bonds and, and, and form contacts with others who are in your field who happen to represent more the African-American um, interests. And yet, Rabbi Scheidman, why don't you tell us about your history in trying to do that and what has occurred. Rabbi? Yes. Uh, number one, I would like to start <laughs> off with a, um, a teaching of the Baal Shem Tov, which that is, uh, if somebody sees a fault in somebody else, it's God's way of showing them. It's sort of like looking in a mirror. If, if you see somebody else doing something and it really disturbs you, sometimes that's, that's God's way, that's Hashem's way of uh, alerting to you. That might be you. That may, that's just an image of what you look like. It disturbs you so much because that's what you look like. The reason I start with that is uh, in my work as a prison chaplain, Rabbi Yitzchak would bear this out, um, the, the state and federal um, systems do not allow uh, the chaplains, the Jewish chaplains coming in to decide who we will and won't see. If somebody identifies as Jewish, we, at least in the state of Illinois and the federal um, places I go to, I, I have to see whoever says they're Jewish. Uh, the chaplains do try to be as accommodating as possible, but if somebody insists, I have to see anybody who identifies as Jewish. And over the years, I've had quite a number of African-American men and women attend the Jewish service. And I've treated them respectfully. I've uh, uh, welcomed them with open arms. In fact, I have at least uh, a half a dozen to a dozen men and women that I am presently still in contact with that I met in prison, but, and we became close with each other, and I am still their family counselor. I am still the one that uh, is there for them when they uh, get shot and they're in the hospital. I'm the one there they see when they wake up. I'm very close with them. So I felt that, look, this is great. I, I'm forming a bond with the African-American community. This men, these men really trust me. And uh, unfortunately, what I found out is them accepting me and then getting that bond does not translate many times to the larger community. And I'll give you an example. 
We Rabbi, are. let me just stop you for a second, because I think our listeners might be interested. Go ahead. The Akbiyat Shushans, I actually do discuss their Jew- Judaism with them, and I explained to them that if you weren't born Jewish and you're seeking Judaism, you would have to convert. And I explained to them, you don't have to, though. You could be a good person to go to heaven, do the seven laws of Noah. And uh, in, in 40 years of visiting non-Jewish men in prison, including African-Americans, to date, not one has ever converted when they got out. They remain friends with me as righteous non-Jewish people. So they're not practicing Judaism, the men I'm talking about. They understand they're not Jewish. They're happy with being uh, B'nai Noah. Or, or, uh, so so, so you're, minis- you're ministering to them, Rabbi. They, they asked for you, though, right? You became their they minister. They asked for me because they feel I... I'm, I, I, I speak to their soul and I'm teaching them how to be a better mensch, how to be a better human, how to even, be a, a better father and son and husband. Even though they externally declared themselves to be, quote unquote, part of the Jewish people, right? Right. But, but, but they understand they're not Jewish. Mm-hmm. They understand themselves. They're not putting a charade on. They don't go to shul and they get out. They meet me in the restaurant. We talk. We schmooze. I don't meet them. I don't go blow Schaefer for them. I understand. They, 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 remain as, they remain as non-Jews and as good friends. So I figured with, with, with this respect I have in the community of these men, so I have one man who manages on the south side of Chicago a safe house, and he told me numerous times, Rabbi, you stay away. We do not bring your white face over here into the neighborhood. The people here will resent being told what to do by a, a white face or even especially a Jew. And let me, let me be the face down over here. It, it, it'll be much easier. Uh, so in other words, even though I'm friends with him, he's saying the rest of my buddies don't get it. They, 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 they sort of almost resent somebody white coming in and trying to solve their problems or tell them what to do. And sometimes, uh, you know, a Jew on, on top of it is, is the, uh, that's the cherry on top of the, of the cake. Um, so, so, I, so this also, must have this must have been very disheartening, and you, I can hear it. I can hear the disappointment in your voice now. Um, and and I know we've talked about it, but why don't you explain in your mind why you think that is? Why is there's this? Why is there this entrenched uh, idea that we cannot make these bonds that even though we have common cause? Right. And that's that's why I opened up with that teaching of the Baal Shem Tov, because I believe that uh, racism isn't a one-way street and prejudice isn't a one-way street. And sometimes if the African-American community feels so strongly that being, um, you know, that people are being prejudiced against them, perhaps the, the, I'm seeing that a lot, of, a lot of times there's prejudice coming from the African-American community of anybody who's not like them. They're, they're very pro-Black. They're not looking to form bonds. They want, they want some power of their own. They don't want to collaborate with, uh, at least that's what I've seen. I, I'll give you two examples. In the federal prison, I can't use any names or, or names of institutions. It's too sensitive. But there was a woman who is uh, uh, in a pretty powerful position to let us in coming into the institution in charge of all the volunteers and training. And she was very disrespectful, specifically to myself. Uh, no matter who else was there, she was an African American woman. She re- even refused to call me rabbi. She always said, "Mr. Shyman, Mr. Shyman," even though she knew I was a uh, a chaplain. So I've seen that sometimes 
uh, there's uh, prejudice from an African-American uh, person, a woman in this case, uh, and you know, using their position. And it seemed to me, I, was, I, I complained to the chaplains, I felt I was being discriminated against. I felt very uncomfortable and very disrespected. And another case is uh, me and my rabbits, and we went to a, a criminal uh, justice reform, a whole forum. The, the majority of the people that were African-American, the organizers, and I, at least maybe my wife was more welcome because she was a woman without a beard and without a yarmulke. Uh, and uh, I, I did not feel welcome in the room. I did not, I felt like I was looked on like an outsider in that group. And I did come in with good intentions and wanting to, you know, do what I could do to, uh, with criminal justice reform and restorative justice. And also with these men, uh, you know, I, I, do, I do still have, so people I personally have connected with, they know me, but on the bigger community, I see there's uh, a lot of distrust. Maybe it's because uh, I'm just because who I am, I am mistrusted. There's mistrust. So, Maybe there were bad experiences that they heard that they had with other Jewish people and they're just stereotyping and saying, oh, he's just one of them. And, you know, we can't trust him. Perhaps yeah, that's yeah. it. Yeah, I think what we're uncovering here is, is, is quite an iceberg. And I don't use the word iceberg because, you know, uh, loosely here. Or maybe what we're uncovering is, you know, the tip of the Goldberg and Greenberg as well, which is that. Uh, and the Whoopi Goldberg. <laughs> yes, not bad, Rabbi. I wasn't expecting Whoopi coming from you, but anyway, um, the 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 <laughs> the idea is is that yes, Rabbi. There's we can see that there's not a prejudice bone in your body. You are a person a Balshemt of Zatalmid, a Balshemt of student that loves all human beings and understands what their role should be, and 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 just wants to encourage people to be the best they can be to actually, as you say, help ascend. Um, however, uh, we know, and, and many of us here are from the Orthodox community, that the communities that we grew up in, although did in many ways reflect, perhaps, not perhaps, definitely uh, a prejudicial and negative stance towards the African-American community. Uh, and I think that that is something that um, uh, was part of my upbringing when I went to yeshiva, it, 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 and, and I've spoken about it in other forums, and I think that this that we we can't just say it's the as you say it's the other person's fault. I think I don't know how that's going to change. Change happens incrementally. <clears throat> there might be some large acts that can somehow push the 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 feeling in a different direction, um, but I, I think there needs to be a search in our house as well. Before COVID became everything, I think every, all our listeners who are going to be listeners would remember not only the uptick of, of, of African-American non-Orthodox Jewish crime, but specifically what was, what was meant to be a massacre in Jersey City. Uh, I think everyone remembers that. Um, the you know, two gun-toting uh, persons, obviously very angry, and they were angry with what was the the they considered the incursion of the Hasidic community in Jersey City, and and they went to target a, a yeshiva. Uh, they ended up targeting a grocery store. It was still a, a terrible tragedy, um, 
And uh, I think it was Mayor Philip, a, a Jewish mayor, did a lot in terms of community healing. There was the attack in Muncie uh, that occurred. Hanukkah, uh, it'll be uh, two, I think two years now. Uh, Hanukkah, that there was an attack in Muncie at, at the Kosovo Rebbe's house, Rabbi Rottenberg. And I think those acts, uh, although many people said, look how terrible the African-American community is, we're, we're doing the same thing when we're labeling them, right? And saying, you know, but we need to think about ourselves, I believe, and think about ways that we have been um, allowing prejudicial terms to enter into our lexicon. Uh, we, we, we allow uh, racial epithets to be, to be spoken um, around our tables. And in, and in general, I think especially in the Northeast, uh, where there was, you know, people think the South is the hotbed of, of racial intolerance. People don't realize that in the Northeast, parents of, of children uh, and grandparents of those children, many of them engaged in violent street fights in the, in the, in the, in the 50s and 60s and even early 70s. And a lot of that violent street fight mentality of turf wars, et cetera, really unfortunately went into the next generation. And because of that, you, you, you hear the type of dismissive language that I think is present in the community. And, and I think the Rabbanim and our leaders, we need on our, from our perspective to root that out as much as possible. Yitzchak, you've been a real um, patient. I know you, there's something, before we move on, Yitzchak, is there something you want to say on this? Well, uh, you know, I, I, I think in general, I, I, I look at things as individuals. And I think instead of trying to, to, uh, to, to grasp onto the entire community, we got to just focus on those individuals that we're able to see that they're, we're, we're talking about human beings, but tell them all it came instead of reducing people merely to their race and the color of their skin, uh, we can look at people just as individuals and we, and we work on them and we see, you know, what kind of friendships we can develop, like, like the rabbi's been doing. And, and uh, you know, we, 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 we can't really have these ideas that we're going to necessarily, you know, there's no one who really represents all of the, the black community, just like, you know, we, we also really don't have, you know, we uh, people who who really represent the entire Jewish community. Maybe an individual community might be represented the same way. You might have, you know, an individual church or a community center or something where that doesn't that doesn't translate to the African American community at large because there isn't one African American community. There are many many communities, just like there are many different Jewish communities, many different. Christian denominations and even within the denominations, different churches, different Islamic denominations and and mosques and so forth. So so this collectivist idea is really, I think, the root of all of the, the racial uh, tension and the racial um, discrimination when we reduce people to just what, to the color of their skin. And I think that's... So Yitzchak, I think what you're saying is we should work on a on a smaller scale build connections where we can and and not and, and not allow the frustration that we have with the larger organizations to stop us from creating fences 
not fences, but actually taking fences away and, and building bridges between uh, communities, but on a local level uh, without necessarily getting involved with the bigger picture where, like you say, uh, it's tainted by the identity politics of the greater... We want to pigeonhole everyone into some kind of a box and it doesn't, it, life doesn't work that way. I guess my only response back, and I'm not pushing back, I think what you're saying is correct, uh, is that be, the way the reality is now, in terms of donors, in terms of money, in terms of political clout, institutions like BLM and others are the ones that wield the type of power that can generate change. And if we are going to be um, uh, hindered in, 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 in creating connections, then I think you know, the, you're right, the attitudinal change in a small pockets might be there. But what we're talking about in, in, in this program, especially, is to try to have uh, as a change within the system. And the, unfortunately, it's like the players, the big players are the ones that seem to have the clout in that system. Um, the, 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 the little beautiful individual stories that you're talking about you know, they, they might make Reader's Digest once in a while, but they aren't necessarily the ones that are going to, uh, you know, create uh, new laws on the books or changing things um, uh, for, for our incarcerated and for theirs. And, you know, the, putting our energies together, uh, putting the energies together of people is obviously the, the, the greatest way to do that. Um, so that, it, it's unfortunate that, that we live in a system that does, as you say, pigeonhole and creates these power grids that, <laughs> that you can't just hop over, um, even though in your own personal life, you're going to do whatever you can to be the best person you, you can be. Uh, but I, you know, in high school, uh, you know, one boy was using a Yiddish term that, that's, you know, well known. That, that we shouldn't use and it's not it's not respectful to use this term and and the teacher said you know you, you don't speak Yiddish you don't come from a, a Yiddish speaking background um, you know if if you were speaking all in Yiddish it would be it, it, it maybe wouldn't be racist <laughs> you're doing this but if you're speaking in English and then you just use that word uh, it's, it's not so yeah these are the problems that we we've had that I grew up with that I remember seeing and we and these collective look i think but you touched on it the fact is is that even in the first grade when the children are absorbing things when their minds are able to absorb and they're elastic and they keep on hearing this message this is inappropriate do not say this we don't say this and i think without becoming uh, sold into the woke mentality i think if we uh, pushed education educationally throughout the system from the Chesidisha, Chadarim, all the way to the most modern Orthodox throughout the whole scope of Torah Masora, if we push this as a, a, an important point, I think that within a generation, I think we would eradicate it. The same way the N-word is considered profanity. It wasn't profanity when I was growing up in the South, but within 15 or 20 years, it has been uh, considered the, the most profane term you could even utter, I think the S word, as you said, or the SHV word, whatever that you're not trying to say, that could also be uh, within, we could, we could educate it out of the system. And that would at least go a little bit. Rabbitson, you've got your hand up. What did you want to say on this? It's true to say that here in America, there are tremendous silos. 
those silos have been built historically. They've been built because people have been allowed to live in certain places and not in other places. And, and that has generated stereotypes and generalizations. And we need, we need to fight our inertia in order to break those down and ask ourselves how true those generalizations are. So for example, if white people are perceived as privileged, then Jews are very much perceived as privileged because of a stereotype. How true is that stereotype? We know that Jews are poor. We know that if, I know in Canada, if you look at the social economic status of the general population and the Jewish population, it's exactly parallel. There is no difference. We also know that the black communities are, there's a very large middle class now that there is a lot of poverty, but there is a middle class moving up within, if you look at social economic statistics, it's moving up quite rapidly within the black communities. They have a middle class. They're getting increasingly educated. And a lot of our stereotypes and generalizations, they have a, a place, but they're actually not true. And I think if we're able to see that our stereotypes and our generalizations statistically have no basis, um, that will help us to break some of these boundaries. There are cities that are extraordinarily diverse where people get along. And, and we have to break some of that inertia. We have to break some of those stereotypes. Um, so do you think, do you think just, you know, um, uh, letting people know about these statistics and education in an adult fashion is the way that those stereotypes are going to be broken? I used to leave diversity workshops. For one point, there was a lot of things in the police where they wanted to lead diversity workshops to decrease racial profiling, to increase diversity and lower harassment in the workplace. And there are some people who don't change. They've been doing this for a long time. And, but nevertheless, we need to say, I'm sorry, this is just not permitted. You're allowed to have your attitude, but this is not acceptable socially anymore. But most people faced with data information change, and even more so when communities start to work together toward common goals and have interactions, then people break down some of their feelings. They re recognize that they're people raising families, um, who just want to live good lives. You know, my, my grandfather hated Germans and, and he hated police too, because he hated the Gestapo. And there were reasons he had those feelings. Were they broken down over time a little bit, but they were, they were forged in a, in a huge fire, right? Um, but through time, we can also we can also break them down by working together toward common goals and, and calling, calling out these prejudices, calling them for what they are, these generalizations, because they only apply to very small elements of the population. So, well, again, it, whether it remains to be seen, you know, what is exactly the best method for, for allow, having this happen, especially in a very contentious um, uh, argumentative and divided country. You know, one of the things that we wanted to I, talk. I, I, I wanted to say something. You know, adding to this. You know, we we're discussing earlier about the frustrations about how you know the Jewish community was so prominent 
in the civil rights movement in the 1960s and how, you know, uh, Rabbi uh, Heschel marched together with Dr. King and so forth and, and how things changed, uh, you know, over the years. And I think part of that was like, kind of how the rabbi was saying about, you know, they don't want to see that white face, meaning they, there is this idea that, you know, people want to feel like they're this white savior. They're here to, to help these, these poor people instead, you know, and, and, and kind of thinking, you know, it's still, in a sense, it's, it's a, another form of prejudice. It's another form of, you know, sometimes trying to help in, in that way as representing, you're representing your group, rep, helping that group instead of a human being helping another human being. It, it's really not coming from much of a different place than a lot of the bigotry that it, there there's yeah. common roots in that in that in that view that you know you know we're you know just like you know in in a certain sense when when there was slavery you know the 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 master was taking care of these slaves because they couldn't fend for themselves and they couldn't you know live in society according to their ideology which was wrong and even a lot of even a lot of abolitionists thought that historically you know there was the movement to to move people to Liberia because yeah. there couldn't be that integration. There couldn't be that. And, no, you, no, you what you're saying is 100% correct. Many, many, many of our actions that we feel are tzedak and chesed really come from an attitude of condescension towards the person who's in need. And we make, we want ourselves to feel good and we telegraph that with our attitude. And you're right. In many ways, uh, we sort of uh, hijack the agency from the people we're trying to help. So I, I, I think the eights, I think the answer to that, you know, is is uh, Alfi Musser, like the Ramban says in the Garis Ramban, Kol Adam Mimcha uh, You have to look up to everybody. You have to not only respect people as equal, but you have to develop a, a true anava to recognize the milas that other people have. That that are mamala the chesroinus that you have, you know that's what the bracha that we say. Brain of Fashis rabbis v'chesron al kamash brusla chais b'am nefesh kol kai. That we recognize the brain of shalom b'shafen azayavel. That we 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 have you know we have miles and chesroinus and other people have their miles and. No, you're right, Yitzchok. I think it is crucial. No, that's the, that's that's the way to cure this problem. No, no, you're right. It is crucial to see the best, and not only see the best in others, but actually see how much better the other person is than you. Let's talk about uh, a, an issue that, as I said before, um, affects uh, definitely a greater percentage of people of color, and that is, as we said, the interactions that we have with police officers that, unfortunately and and, and tragically, has led to some of the most um, uh, notorious cases in the last couple of years, which is the traffic stop. Now, again, I'm no expert, uh, no legal expert. Uh, Bob, you're the uh, person who has the legal knowledge. And Dan, you're, of course, the person with the police knowledge. But let's talk about the fact that um, based on the 1996, I think, Supreme Court ruling and Wren versus the United States, uh, the Supreme Court ruled that what had become common practice for officers to do a pretextual stopping of a car uh, based on the hundreds and hundreds of possible uh, traffic violations 
that are part of the book. It, it could be a taillight, it could be a tinted window, it could be five miles over the speed limit, whatever it is, that is that caused, it was already common practice by the 1990s when this case appeared before the Supreme Court for police to pull people over, ostensibly because of the traffic violation, which allows them to do that. And then because of their suspicion of that this person might be a, a person having drugs or involved in some illegal activity continue from there. And even with probable cause, I believe, demand to search the vehicle and create what create what was created was the, the history of, of, of very ugly confrontational situations, which, which, as we saw in the last couple of years, has led to, uh, unfortunately, fatalities and other things. So, Bob, why don't you... Uh, Talk about this uh, about this matter, if you don't. Well, mind. I I think this is a very broad topic that you're talking about, and I don't think that the suspicion of the minority communities um, are based just on traffic stops. You could be a minority standing on a street corner, and a police officer comes up to you and starts questioning you or harassing you in some manner or form uh, that would create suspicion between the minority community and the white community or the police community. Um, and, and it's not confined to uh, traffic cases. And I, I think we have to first understand that the police have tremendous authority uh, in this country and, and every country. They get to investigate, they get to um, question people, they get to arrest people, they could use force when it's justified, they're heavily armed. And I think that the relationship to the last uh, questioning about the white and the Jewish community and the suspicion there is with the black community, if, if there's a suspicion not based on anything actual, how much more would the black and minority uh, people be suspicious of police officers who are arresting a lot of people in their community? Now, I know that the other argument is that the, there is only a minority of the minority people who are committing crimes, and the overwhelming majority of communities are happy to have the police patrol and stuff, but I, I think that's very naive. I, I, and as I said to you earlier uh, in another forum, I think that there's a natural tendency for white communities uh, to look at police officers as people who will protect them and help them. And I know this from 35 years of experience, uh, people in the minority community are much more suspicious of police officers and look at them more as a potential threat than as a potential to help them out. So, Bob, before I want to get Dan in on this in a minute, but wouldn't you say, Bob, there's a there's and then we talk about you, what you what you were talking about was something that was known in New York as stop and frisk, I think. Right. And that was if a police officer saw someone on the street that 
who seem to be acting suspicious in some way or shifty, whatever sort of uh, body language or other tells were the person was giving off that brought the policeman in contact with them. I, 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 I still think there might be a difference between that and stopping someone cold on a highway <laughs> and or on a, on, on a road. But, where... but here, here, here's the similarity, Rabbi. It all has to do with taking away a portion of your freedom. Whether a police officer on the street goes up to you, you can't leave. He won't let you leave. If you stop someone in a car, they can't leave. They're not allowed to leave by the police officer. And so in either case, what we're really talking about is Fourth Amendment issues against illegal searches and seizures, the Fourth Amendment of our Constitution. And the police, because they have so much power and authority, you have to have checks and balances on what they're allowed to do. And when you mentioned stop and frisk, and, I, and, and you also mentioned traffic, stops, really it comes, all of that comes under the same uh, thing, which is the Fourth Amendment of the United States. What activities do we allow our police to do in questioning citizens in stopping cars? Or when, what, when is it a problem and it goes over the line and is not allowed? Police officers are trained in what they can do and what they can't do. But I think it would be silly to believe that they don't, on occasion, go over the line. For instance, let's go to the traffic stops, and you will understand that if someone stops at a stop sign for two seconds and they should have stopped for three, why would we stop them? And the reason that they're stopped is if there's suspicion of greater activity, like you were saying, pretextual, that they, they stop them for this reason in order to find something else. The problem becomes that they can also stop them for no reason, okay, looking for something else. As I mentioned to you in another forum, the Republican junior senator, African-American uh, Senator Tim Scott, said in a Newsweek article that he has been stopped 19 times for no reason, and he called it driving while black. So that's a problem that the minority... You have been uh, listening, I know, uh, very patiently, and this is your uh, area where I think you could enlighten us. And uh, do you have any response to, to Bob specifically? Uh, thank you. I, I I agree with the with Bob's comment that this is uh, an issue regarding the Fourth Amendment and and succeeding case law. Terry versus Ohio allows for stop and question tactics by the police, and that's old case law. So yes, the police have been empowered to engage when there are certain levels of suspicion to investigate. Uh, I agree with that. I agree that that authority can be abused at times. I think that, um, I think that the constant tension between civil rights and law enforcement is a natural factor of our society. And 
I think that we need to also be aware that there, for every action that we take in any of these realms, there will be a reaction. So, you know, you know I, I mean, we, you know, you seem to, you know, you seem to be intent on discussing the traffic stop, and I, you know, I don't even know how many hundreds of thousands of traffic stops occur in this nation every year. Um, I'm curious. I, I, I think it's 20 million, I think, or something like that. I think it's like over 20 million, I think. But go ahead. Okay. I mean, again, I won't, I won't argue with the number, but I, I'm sure it's a very large number. And I'm sure that the ones that we're talking about that, as you claimed, as you stated, were, quote, notorious, are a miut, a fraction of that. And yes, it is a problem. Because again, when something goes bad, it usually is bad and people can actually lose their lives. And I'm not trying to minimize that. But I think that we also need to be very cognizant of the fact that, well, you know what, why don't we just take the simplest example of 2020. 2020, largely lost to the pandemic. Um, and the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration has already released numbers that in spite of the fact that I think some 13% of traffic was down, less people, there was 13% less traffic on the roads, 7% or 8% increase in fatalities in 2020 on the highways. So, you know, we have to also be cognizant that a lack of enforcement also results in loss of life in other ways. So, you know, we seem to right. be focused on, we seem to be focused on that small percentage uh, uh, of, 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 of stops that go wrong. But remember, there's a reason why people get stopped. People uh, actually do speed and people right. actually do violate laws left, left and right. So and, uh, well, there's Dan, a reason I, why they're stopped. Dan, I think that the uh, captain, I think that you would. We are talking about two different things. If someone is driving like a maniac or or going at an extremely dangerous speed, and we all know that this is a, a discussion that the that the Supreme Court had and the post can have, the rabbis have as well. When everybody is speeding, is it illegal? Right. When 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 the traffic is all moving much higher than sixty five or fifty five, right? So. But when you have someone who's dangerously driving and swerving, I think everybody, Bob and anyone, uh, would admit you have to have police there to to pull such a person over because that person is wielding a machine that could kill someone. That it's 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 a thousands of pounds of machinery that could destroy a person's life, his own and others. I think everybody agrees that those stops should happen. We're talking more about the pretextual ones, the ones where, hey, you know, I don't like the windows in that car. I don't like the look of that person. Um, there seems to be something happening. The music's very loud. It's coming out there. I think the guy's got his foot stuck out the window. Something's going on there. And, and that, those are the stops that we're talking about, right? And I think, you know, and, and you're correct. I don't think anybody denies that 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 we need people to stop uh wild driving uh, erratic driving on the road the question is you know these, these i think these other stops aren't like that go ahead dan though 
Well, I mean, just in answer to your initial point, I mean, the bottom line is that, remember, you don't necessarily want to just arrest the behavior. You want to prevent the behavior. The way to prevent the behavior is regular enforcement. So I think what happened in 2020 is indicative that a lot of people realize that there's less enforcement going on and they took advantage. I don't think it's just that all of a sudden everybody decided to uh, drive erratically. I think people realize that enforcement was down and therefore they take advantage as people will do. That is a natural, that is a natural uh, outgrowth. Um, uh, Captain. Yes. I, I, I would like to uh, say a few things. There's a natural tension between the police and people who are not the police just by nature of those two positions. Uh, the, when, when someone sees a police officer, even if, when I see a police officer, when I'm driving, I'll slow down, I'll look at the speedometer, I'll make sure I do a, a turn signal. There's a natural paranoia that anybody has in relationship to their uh, connections uh, that they have with the police. The, That's the actually, problem, but I, be, I, but I, I would like to address a, a wider problem. You mentioned Terry versus Ohio. It says that a police officer is not allowed to just go up to anybody they want with no reason. They have to have reasonable suspicion that there is crime underfoot. And it can't be mere hunches. You have to have actual facts that you can point to. So Correct. you're not allowed to just go up to people and harass them or question them. And as to look at, if there's no one's talking about defunding the police, we don't know police officers. We just need police officers to work within the rules. And I'm not saying what percentage does or does not, but as a captain with your experience, you know that sometimes the police uh, do their own thing, so to speak. And and the thing is, is that I think, Rabbi, the mistake you're making could be the fact that the police could stop a hundred people, nothing results from it because they're looking for suspicious things and they let the people go. And so we never hear about those that the police are stopping because nothing good or bad happened from it and each party went on their way. But it's an illegal stop. If they're just stopping these people, they're preventing them, whether you're on the street loitering and the police come up to you, whether you're stopped in the car, you are taking away amount of freedom that those people have a right to have. And so the police, you know, are a little bit doing their own thing out there. And sometimes if they stop 10 people and they find one car in which there's greater criminal activity, they think that's a big win, but I think it's a big loss for the other nine people who then felt like they were mistreated. Um, Robertson, I, you wanted to say something. Yeah, the majority of traffic stops may be related to protecting our society. How many are related to these minor things that police take time out of their extremely busy day to check somebody's blinkers? I don't know. Maybe they're doing it a lot. Do we have any numbers of that? There's an assumption that police are stopping people all the time. And I, I doubt they have that time. The other question is, 
is their racial profiling when they stop people? And, and, and that's a good question. Um, however, police may be placed in certain areas more than others. There may be more stresses and crime. Police come out of their car, they will be stressed. And if there's more crime in an area, um, that could also increase those traffic stops. I'm not saying there's not racial profiling. I'm just saying we need to have an evidence-based look at these practices. Are these traffic stops reducing crime? Because if they're not, then what is the purpose of them? Frankly, in America, 1,000 people have died this year at the hands of the police. Just over 250 police officers have died. Compared to, um, you know, we have these stereotypes from these one incidences where the police come over and it's a traffic stop. That incident might be less than 0.1% than of all the traffic stops that police do. And I think we need to have more evidence based as to why we're doing it and what are the results of these traffic stops and are police measured or not? You know, you know, you know Rebitson, you, know, you talk about evidence. You know, there, there have been studies. There was a North Carolina study uh, that I sent uh, you uh, recently, just right before we started recording. That did, that did indicate that the, the amount of stops that were occurring for people of color and, and, and African-Americans specifically <laughs> was incredibly inflated. Um, so, I, but again, I, I think if COVID has taught us anything, it's the fact that data and numbers can be used by the experts in ways to prove whatever they want. And I, and, and, and I won't juggle them, and I'm definitely not qualified to do that. Right. Uh, I, I think the question was, if, look, to, I think we all agree, everyone here, I think, agrees that we want to, there should be police on the highways. Clearly, there are dangerous there are dangerous drivers, and as Dan says, we don't want people dying in, in, in our car accidents. As Bob said, police there means you're going to stop and drive safer. We understand that. The question is the pullover, the stopping. There are ways that, and, and again, I didn't even. As far as I know, there's no jurisdiction that is legally operating that the police are funding their own salaries by traffic stops. I, I mean, think that, those issues. Happening are apples and, and oranges though, Rabbi, because you may have jurisdictions that the purpose of the stop is to generate money. And I think the captain and, and, and myself will say that, you know, so be it. That's I not mean, really what and, we're and, talking about and, here. We're and, talking and, about the danger that comes into traffic stops that get more serious than uh, simply getting a ticket for going through a stop sign. Uh, the ones that are doing it to, to get money, th their only interest is to give them the ticket to generate revenue. But there is a whole bunch of police officers who are trying to prevent crime and are doing it in order to see if there's a bigger problem underway in the traffic stop. Oh, I, I, I know uh, both, both sides of this. First of all, there at least where I live, we have there are the police have quotas they have to be made you know my my wife talks about one time she got a ticket and the officer said that you know I, if if i didn't have to meet this quota i wouldn't have given you a ticket because you have a clean record etc that was one aspect. right but but, but, Bob's but the other point, aspect the other Bob's aspect point is, is very valuable Bob's yeah, yeah, point I, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you i i was a rub of a shul a few years ago and we had the captain of the state of the state police locally uh 
was one of the Balabatim in the shul. And he, he told me, he said, uh, you know, one out of every 10 stops he makes is, is someone who's dangerous and they're, you know, looking to, to get off the street and it, it's worthwhile. And, and again, it's, it's the that captain didn't become a captain by uh, pushing revenue in jurisdictions that needed money. He became a captain because he dealt with what was happening on the street in a more serious manner. Right. All, all I'm saying, Bob, is and I, I, you're right. It is apples and oranges, but it, it still is pulling someone over when it's unnecessary. That's the point. There are ways that the revenue can be had. And it's also in many ways, I, I think the two go hand in hand. We know that the interaction of a stranger coming to your car creates tension, creates anxiety. And whether it's because I might suspect the person is strange or because I need to make money, you are now causing an interaction that's unnecessary. It's in a way a stop of your freedom. And, 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 and what it leads to is not only the, the stop of your freedom and, and that time is taken away from you, but it also could potentially turn into something that we don't need, which is suspicion. Go ahead, go ahead, Dan. I think I think a better example, though, if you're going to use the budgetary issue, is a, a better example is where a, a ticket is being written for a infraction that wasn't committed. That would be uh, that would be a good example of what we were initially talking about, which is stops that Bob is, you know, Bob is purporting may be totally unnecessary and in fact illegal. That 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 would be your example. One of the things that was stated here was, and and, and the Rebbitson said that she was involved in uh, of diversity training. Uh, how about you? And in, in, in when you were on the force, did you feel that the that the the, the, the recruits that were under you, the recruits that you dealt with, uh, were properly schooled in uh, trying to eliminate prejudice? Uh, so I, I know that. There, there's always a attempt to attack diversity issues from different perspectives of training. Um, I, I am over the years. I, I think I've become a strong believer that a person's behavior is really what we want to mandate, and not their not their thought process. Because again, all of us pretty much have a long background from before the police department and whatever thoughts we are walking around with, I don't think we're trying to rip those out of our minds. I think instead we need to focus on the behavior. We expect our cops to be fully trained to be, to exercise the law with full impartiality. That is what we want. I completely and, agree with the, with the captain that, you're not going to change people's thoughts, but change their actions. Just make sure that they keep within the bounds of their job and their duties and, and what they're supposed to do. If they want to be prejudiced, now obviously you could say that prejudiced people, the prejudiced actions will follow, but at least if there's consequences, sometimes it won't. And I, I would just like to uh, take umbrage one thing with what the Rebidson said. And you said something like, statistically, only 1,000 minorities died and 250 police officers. And statistically, that's not a lot. But I, I really feel like 
you're not giving it its due. You know, we should get that thousand down to 800, to 400, yeah. to 50. No, look, I wasn't. And police officers too, because we don't want mm. a lot of dead people that shouldn't have been dead, but for the actions or of well, one Bob, side doing Bob, the wrong and thing. And I didn't Bob, say. in all fairness, Bob, Rebitson, if I may, we don't even know how many of those were armed individuals. What if it was 979? I mean, what if what, what if we're down to 21 cases where there was a questionable shooting? So it's I'm fair. saying, you know, before we before we take too much umbrage with the Rebitson, I think, you know, we need to realize that let's find out what the circumstances of every single one of those thousand is. Right. I just want to say that one death is too much. I wasn't implying that a thousand was acceptable. I was just comparing the 1,000 to the amount of accalcerations that a police officer has and the amount of violence in America. So there are other factors in that accalceration that, that Constable Dan brought up. We need to look at the whys, not just numbers. I agree with Rabbi Kivalevich. I think also training police officers diversity isn't enough. I was very much involved in getting a representative police force. We need to have representative. And actually, the people who are most killed by the police are young males. So if we're going to look at prejudice, probably crime is committed a lot by young males, and they're the ones being killed. Is that prejudice toward women? That's a good question, right? The point is we need a diverse police force. We need a representative police force. And police are soldiers. They enact the laws. We need laws that they don't, they, police will be put in prison if they don't follow the laws. They follow what their commanders tell them to do. They follow what politicians tell them to do. And they follow the laws. If the laws give them leeway, if their commanders give them leeway, then the police behave in a certain way. And we need to go to the source of that problem. I'm not saying there aren't police officers that are misbehaving. I am not saying that there is stresses when a police officer goes out in the street that pushes him beyond what his behavior should be. I'm not saying there are not places in America. There are places in Canada where police officers go in where no one will go in and they're taking their lives in their hands and, and, and they know it. Like, res like reserves in Canada. It's dangerous to go in there. So we are sending our officers into areas where no one else will go in to protect people and to deal. Here in Chicago, when the police stood down, um, Americans picked up guns and they stood in their stores with their guns. I would have been more scared of that because police are trained with their guns and they're more measured. I worked in New York for over 30 years, and the NYPD in the largest metropolitan city in this country was probably one of the most uh, reserved police agencies in the country. I mean, the number of per capita shootings by police was in the 0.15 range. Per capita. So we're, we're talking about a very, very small number of, of firearms discharges by police. And remember and this, Rabbi, if I may just cut in for one minute and then please continue. In the case of Gavin Floyd, it had nothing to do with deadly weapons. 
a police officer's knee on a person's neck was enough to be a violence and cause his death. So this thing about which weapon, how, you know, how many bullets you should have in, in the magazine, it really doesn't make any sense in the sense that the police are also trained in how to physically uh, have combat with a person without weapons too. So the, the weapons, I, I, I don't feel make a difference. I, I want to argue it two ways. I trained, <laughs> I helped to train police on weapons. I was not myself a police officer. I am not an expert on weapons, but I devised their courses. So I knew the statistics of weapon use. There was an incident in Canada where somebody unilaterally decided he didn't want to militarize the police and he did not provide them with some higher weapons. There was somebody in a park who decided to tempt the police into the park. He was wearing combat, whatever, and he had a very good weapon. The police arrived and they were mowed down. They tried to hide behind their cars. Their cars could not you know, did not, was on a barrier for the weapon. They were completely mowed down, a lot of police officers. And they were sued. The police, the RCMP was sued. The family said, why weren't these officers better equipped? And the equipment happened to be in another part of Canada. So I'm going to argue about disarming them. My question is, if we, is there a way to perhaps be measured? There's, there's, there's calculated risks. And I think that if you, you know, we part of what this whole program is about is changing the perception of of people towards things. Is this an option in helping change the perception? Is less traffic stops? Is is is, is will this will any of these suggestions help? I think our panel has uh, just add. I would just add in regards to the traffic stop discussion, is that I think that all of the cameras that uh, are now in existence in so many police departments should provide a better answer to Bob's concerns because ultimately we are recording the stop from start to finish. So I think that you know there, there should be some type of uh, research into exactly what we're seeing on these stops because I think that really would tell us a lot because you know as most people feel in most cases anyway, the video, well, you know, doesn't really lie that much. It might, it might, I completely, it might miss something. But I completely lie. agree with you on that. The body cams, the officers who have the cameras on them, the cameras in the car, and to tell you the truth, all the cell phones of people who are witnessing the thing that's going on, that definitely seems to be nothing but positive to me to protect the police officer and to protect the citizen, because if everybody knows that they're going by video, they're more likely to do the right thing. Not always, but I think in a greater. Yes, I would like to uh, just mention that aside from being a chaplain in the prisons, I also am a Illinois State Police chaplain, and I have gone on ride-alongs. And, and I find that the officers, just like when I meet people in the prisons, there's the human side. Um, there's a soft side and there's a kind side to the police officers. And as an example is there are many times when I'm riding along with the police officer, he'll pull over somebody and uh, go over and then come back to the car. He says, Rabbi, give me one of those cards you have, get out of jail 
free card. I'm going to give this guy a break tonight. I'm going to tell him he's lucky the police chaplain was with me. So the, the police aren't always going out there to uh, slam somebody or make money and make revenue. They're humans, they're kind, and they have that kind side as well. I'm sure the captain has seen that over the years. Uh, uh, right. So basically, if we can, if we could, again, go beyond the uniform and see kindness and see understanding, that could do a lot more to changing behavior than the, the, the tough um, you know, billy club attitude. Yeah. I think yeah, that's send a chaplain with every police officer. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> Good yeah. idea. <laughs> okay. Well, all right. Rabbi armed only really with, with his Tanya and, and the sense of love. <laughs> that's enough to get you through uh, even the most dangerous ride. Well, thanks for this ride. We've gone a lot of bumpy places in and out of nooks and crannies. Um, stay safe on the highways out there, uh, especially as summer wanes. Uh, be careful. And uh, if a policeman does pull you over, remember to be extremely respectful and understand that they are just doing their job and, you know, you'll live with it. Take care, my friends. Be well. Thanks for everybody tonight. Be well. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode. 